You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We're podcasting from CNU 26 in Savannah, Georgia. And I have with me David Rao, an architect from New York City, working for Hart Howerton. Did I say that right? Yes. And then uh, my old friend Steve Mozan, who's been on the podcast a couple times, author of the original Green, amongst other things. And we are going to talk about absolution, CNU, and the changing American city. And I, I guess I have to say right off the bat, of all the podcasts that I'm scheduled to do in this one, this is the one that I'm the most, uh, I won't say bewildered about, but not, not really, like, I don't come to the table knowing exactly what we're going to converse about. I feel like I'm going to learn more during this session than actually uh, kind of lead the conversation. So, David, I understand that this started with a, a talk that you gave at a prior CNU. And I guess I wanted to ask if you could kind of start us off here. What, what do we mean by absolution? Uh, what, what, was, what was the thrust of your conversation? And, and how do we get this between you and Steve and I started? Sure. So uh, this idea of ab absolution has been an evolving one for me over the last few years. And it really started uh, with thinking about how CNU has evolved over the years and really, you know, in the early days, it was um, the new urbanism was really based on traditional town planning and traditional forms and traditional architecture. And it seemed to me that through the course of the years that, that the traditional underpinnings had um, sort of been forsaken a bit. And if you look at some of the recent award winners over the years, and especially I think in Buffalo, there was a, a very provocative grand prize winner, I guess, for the, for the CNU Awards that year that was just sharply modern. And it brought things up in me questioning can you have a modern architecture in a traditional framework? And is it, is it the same? Is it, is it um, consistent? And so uh, there's that sort of dichotomy. And that, that brought out all sorts of things about modernism against traditionalism and the battles that go on in the architecture schools and among architects about style, the sort of the style wars. And so the idea of absolution was really trying to come to terms with those two um, sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. And the idea that architecture can be vilified by one group or the other, it can be associated with, uh, you know, evil regi regimes, and, and then new regimes can come in and discard old architectural forms, and then, you know, trends come and go, and um, for instance, the Victorian style was sort of vilified for a long time, now we sort of value Victorian buildings, so there are cycles sure. to these things, but, and in the cycles, there's a process of forgiveness, where it, later generations sort of grow to accept and appreciate um, old things and, and then revive them and bring them back and discover new value and apply new values to them. And then all that was sort of brought to a head this year with the events in Charlottesville where we had iconography in the urban realm, uh, monuments, inscriptions, words uh, in the public world that became the subject of heated debate and even violence and aggression. And uh, it was another instance of transition within a culture where old forms 
took on uh, different meanings. They were vilified. And then the question about absolution is, is, is there a process by which we can come together and address these things and see something new in these old forms and not necessarily get rid of everything, but keep the good and, and move forward? Sure. I've sensed that most of our audience at Strong Towns is maybe even less than me aware of the passionate differences between traditional architecture and modernist architecture. Uh, I got my first induction of this early on in the CNU. People were yelling at each other and, and having these very heated debates. And I looked at it and I'm, I'm like, I'm an engineer. I don't know anything about what you're talking about. I've come to appreciate some of the nuance between the two. Maybe I'll ask Steve if you could give us like a primer on I realize that this is a, a long, long discussion and debate, but just for like the 101 level kind of person, when we talk about modern architecture and traditional architecture, because then I'd like to get into kind of the, the co-option of, of both maybe a little bit from a cultural standpoint. What are we really talking about here? What we're really talking about is religion. Okay. It really is to both uh, the modernist and the traditionalist. It very often becomes somewhat of uh, a religious war. I mean, it, it, it's to that level. So it's, it, it's, it's, uh, an, ar it's an architectural religion. Yes, it, it, and the other guys are the heathen. Yeah, okay. You know, and <laughs> according to some, they deserve to die. Actually, right after uh, Katrina, we were doing work with the Katrina Cottages and had uh, there was a manufacturer that we're working with to build one of the prototypes uh, that got built uh, early on. He happened to be in... Uh, at an event with uh, with Reed Kroloff, who was the dean at Tulane at the time, and um, but, but Reed did, uh, did not know the connection, and so he kind of he sort of threw some red meat out, and they were talking about what each you know what what these various groups should do, and so the manufacturer asked, well, what should the new urbanists do? He said, what should the new urbanists do? They should die. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. I mean, it was it was right. So it, it's that level of fervor very often, and. You know, with articles of faith and with, you know, all these things. And, and so, but here's, here's the real big, the big divide that happened uh, way back in the beginning of modernism. Modernism burdened itself because by definition, if it's going to be modern, then it cannot be something that's been done before. So it burdened itself with the necessity of uniqueness. If you want to be significant, you must be unique. If you're not unique, you want to get published. Or at least the storyline goes like that. Now, sure. And but the 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 funny thing was when we were both in school, uh, I remember that there was kind of a game that we played where where uh, you would try to to find the precedent for someone's design because you knew that some second year or third year student didn't just come up with all this stuff. You know, they they had to have seen it somewhere in a magazine, and it would it was always like a gotcha moment when ah here's what here's where, what you ripped off. You're not you know? original. Yeah. yeah, you're not original. You know, <laughs> and um, but that that burden of supposedly having to be unique means that you must reject everything that is proven to work. Right. And, and so that was a very clear, as uh, Nathan Norris would say, it's it's a bright line. I guess that's a legal term or something, but anyhow, it's a bright line between one side and the other. That that um, there's nothing muddy about that. Right. It, it's it's either it's unique or it's not. The problem came when you know for about a generation or so, all the first generation modernists were able to all do relatively rational stuff, whether you like Wright or Mies T or taking Corbeau. traditional and modifying it in some way. Well, not even that. It was it was it was definitely well. 
you know, Andres makes the case that that even Mies, Mies van der uh, did some things that could be considered uh, classical, actually. Uh, he makes a pretty strong case for that. But w- whether that's the case or not, it was all stuff that made sense. You can see how the load comes down and, and uh, gets supported and all this. But after about a generation, because everything had to be unique, they kind of ran out of, of uh, rational stuff to do. Sure. And so you have what I refer to as the lost generation of architects that, that is – uh, they were floundering around trying to decide, well, what do we do next? And that was uh, kind of characterized by, by uh, brutalism, which is, is undergoing a revival now uh, it, among design geeks. The origin of the word brutalism is, was about the beton brut, it, it, uh, the method of, of finishing the concrete. So, but, but the word is so perfect for the, for right. the character of it. Because it has a brutal feel to exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it was literally some of the most brutal architecture in the history of humanity. Then there was, after that, in the, throughout the 1970s, when, when uh, we started in school, there was kind of this brewing discontent with the lost generation. And there was a group of people that, that said, we, we don't know what we're going to do, but it won't be what those guys did. I remember in, in about 1980, it was okay to love Leon Creer um, and Frank Gehry at the same time. There came a point where uh, amongst the, the rebel camp, there, there was a schism. You know, it's, it's a religious thing again. Sure. And, and so one side said, uh, we will be unique even if it means we cannot be rational. And they, they basically became the Stark Texas of today. The other side said, no, we will be rational even if it means we cannot be unique. And they became uh, the classicists, uh, the neurobanists, the traditionalists of today. And now they're both, you know, lobbing hand grenades at each other again. So, uh, but that's kind of how we've gotten, in my view anyway, to, to where we are and, and why there is this great need for absolution. It seems to me, just from like a human psychology standpoint, people who tend to be liberal tend to be very open to change want to try new things, want to kind of push the boundary. People who tend to be conservative tend to maybe have a deference to the past, want to, you know, build slightly on what came before, kind of like, if it worked, why change? You say religion, it seems like, you know, often like politics are, politics is religion sometimes too. Are, Are we getting into something like innate about humans and just the way we're wired here? Is that like the basis of this conversation? Are we starting with, with like, you're kind of wired this way and you're kind of wired that way and we're maybe both okay, but we both see this in a very different way? I think people are definitely wired, but I don't know that there are um, consistent parallels between politics, religion, Absolutely. race. Yeah, great. Those sorts of, uh, you know, other sort of categories. Uh, it's, it's yet another category and it can sort of make up a, a matrix so you can get an conservative African-American sure. <laughs> who likes mod- that, <laughs> modern architecture. That's what's fascinating about um, this place for me is that you do get that. Yeah. Right. It was interesting because yesterday's session was really uh, sort of moving this this conversation a little bit less specifically on architecture and and style and character and more into the question of, of uh, uh, social justice and how it relates and uh Two of our other panelists yesterday were uh, African Americans, and we were discussing, um, you know, in the context of absolution, the sort of evolution of the city that's happening now with the removal of a lot of the monuments and things like that. One of our uh, participants 
Ashley Walton, a young black architect who works with um, Urban Design Associates in Pittsburgh. Someone asked, uh, what would African-Americans like in the city? And she got up and said, well, African-Americans are not all the same. We're right. not a unified voice. Amen. We, we, yeah. uh, we're like you. We like a lot of the same things that everybody else likes. Your question reminds me of her statement. Okay. I'm Catholic, so the, I, the, the notion of absolution means something <laughs> quite profound. This idea that at some point you cease to carry the burdens of prior mistakes and you're able to kind of start afresh and anew. Tell me how absolution, the, the concept, applies to the conversation that you're trying to start here in the new urbanism. Right. So I was thinking about how, how architecture over the ages you know, goes from one culture to another and goes through these, these phases. And you can look at the, you know, the Greeks established ancient classicism really in honor of their pagan gods. The Romans sort of took that, they dispensed with those gods and they dispensed with all the meanings and th that they might've seen as evil that the Greeks had for their gods and just sort of took the architecture and assigned, you know, new meaning for new gods for them. And then you know, several centuries later, the Roman Catholic Church sort of looked at these, you know, Greek temples that were to evil pagan gods <laughs> uh, and just co-opted that and assigned new meaning, new fresh meaning and imbued it with this idea. of. I, re of I a, remember being in Italy and uh, right. like being like in this beautiful Catholic monument right. and then opening up my brochure and reading, this used to be a temple to the pagan god, whatever. Right. And all of a sudden, all these, all these evil things were gone yeah. and it was now beautiful and holy. Right. And then you can, you know, centuries later, Albert Speer and yes. then, you know, Nazism yes. uh, and fascist architecture adopted a lot of the same motifs and forms and proportions and details uh, for a completely different thing, not not religious at all, but now really a political and, you know, um, sort of propaganda type of architecture. And that's been vilified by our culture. And then, you know, a couple decades later in Washington, D.C., the subway opens and the Washington Metro has these big coffered vaulted domes that look very much like all the other stuff that came before it, but it's, it's out of the modernist. It's the, it's a brutalist type of architecture. It theoretically came from, you know, the school of thought that you get rid of history, but there it is again. It's been, it's been denuded of these religious connotations, political propaganda connotations, and now it's somehow a civic and, you know, nationalistic type of architecture. Right. So that became very interesting to me, how cultures, you know, um, go through these, these phases whether it's generational or even over the centuries, looking at it, it seemed like there's a there is a process. It's almost like the, the you know the twelve step sort of process, or, or or the seven steps of grief. Right. There is this early you know aggression and anger uh, where people battle over certain things, and you saw that in Charlottesville. There was actually violence. There was a death. This is over civic architecture and and events and Steve pointed out that those sorts of events those angry events are taking place in the public square they're surrounded by architecture they're in the urbanism uh, people gravitate to important places that are ostensibly new urbanist places Main Street in Charlottesville the um, the lawn at UVA uh, decorated with these these monuments so it's happening in the in the urban space so there's the anger then there's this sort of acceptance phase where you sort of reconcile, where you accept the fact that it's been, ha both sides sort of accept the fact that something's happened. This happened after the Second World War. 
when everybody's sort of, okay, the war's over, we have to reconcile, um, we still have issues, so there's a lot of talking, and reconciliation involves that sort of process. And then you sort of move into a period of forgiveness, where the sort of victors can bestow forgiveness on the losers. You see this everything all the way down from, you know, confession at church. There's the the representative of the church who forgives the congregationalists. The problem with that is it's not quite done because there's still this power position where there's the forgiver and the forgiven who are still sort of, you know, in this relationship. So absolution, the idea of absolution is it's the point when people, where you reach complete understanding uh, where people acknowledge what has happened, they're, but they're able to give up as if it hadn't happened and move forward uh, together. So it, that's sort of my take on the process yeah. of absolution, and I think that that's that that is what has to happen with you know different pieces of architecture, whether it's you know classical architecture in the antebellum South that still has heavy meaning for African Americans, and some people don't want that type of architecture used for public buildings because it sends the wrong messages. But I think that, that, that we're in a process of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of dealing with it in order to reach a period of, of absolution where these forms can, come, can be used again freely without, you know, by, by both sides. Without a, so, yeah, I hear you. There's this quote that we like to throw around in, in planning school, I'm sure in architecture school, the, you know, first we shape the city, then the city shapes us. Is it right. Churchill? I can't remember I who that's Churchill, attributed yeah. to. If you don't know, you attribute it to Lincoln or Churchill or Mark <laughs> Twain, right? Right. It's, uh, it's got to be one of those three people. You have this sense of, you know, as we proceed as urban designers, as planners, as architects, that we're actually building places that are going to shape society. When we look back at societies of the past, they weren't always virtuous places. How does that, I guess, association carry with it a certain baggage? In other words, I think we'll acknowledge at the table here that when we go out and build a place, we're hoping for certain like social ends. We're hoping people become better people. We become a better community. We become a better society. Our version of a better society will probably be abhorrent to someone 200 years from now for whatever reason that we're just not able to see or perceive right now. What would we ask of them in the future? What's fair and respectful looking back at the people who I, you would hope had good intentions when they put this stuff together? You know, and that's, that's one of the most troublesome things to me in, ter- in terms of, of knowing what that might be because it always involves the blind spots of today. And by that, I mean, if you go back and read some of the, the early people that, that uh, like John Nolan, that's a, that's a new urbanist hero. But if you actually read what he was writing in the late 1920s, he was extolling the, the, uh, the virtues of, uh, of single-use zones, you know, which, which is the DNA of sprawl. Um, and we now know what, what damage that has done. Almost any point in the, in the past, what the choices that people were making then Many of those choices are things that we consider to be dishonorable today. And I've always wondered, what are the things that we as the new urbanists are doing now that will be perceived as being destructive, you know, a few decades into the future? And how could we avoid that? And and so I'm always trying to, in my mind, test stuff. Could this cause a problem? You know, what could this do that, that would be a negative thing, even though it looks like the thing we ought to be doing today? I don't know if vigilance about that is useful or not. 
whatever it is, we're having a blind spot for it. And and uh, but I'm I'm saying that you're probably right. It's probably inevitable that at some point, not too far down the road, that we will be regarded as being uh, very dishonorable by by those who come after us. Because what what we're asking for that not to be the case is for us to be able to impart our virtues to future generations. And as everybody knows, you know, the kids reject what the parents did. You hope that by the time you get to the grandparents that they're bringing some stuff back that had value. Slavery is a classic example that at some point in the past it was considered just a normal thing. Then at some point, we all know the history, then it, it, um, it was not. I, for one, have a hard time discounting everything Thomas Jefferson did because uh, he owned slaves. Because if if we discount everything that everyone did that, that does not match our virtues today, we're basically saying we shouldn't exist. You know, <laughs> and so at some point in time, we have to do what what David is advocating, which is to find a way to forgive those dead and let the living live. How much of this is just a changing power dynamic? You mentioned that a little bit, David. I'd like to maybe explore that a little bit deeper. I'm going to be in Rome in about 10 days. I've been to Rome a couple times. What an amazing city. You go to the Roman Colosseum, and this is a place where they used to like throw Christians to the lions. I don't walk in there as a Christian going, you know, this place should be raised to the ground because it's a hallmark of, you know, this horrible past. Somehow Christians have gained power and essentially co-opted these monuments and now revere them not as a place of oppression, but as a, a source of pride. Is this really more of a kind of changing power dynamics that as people who have been marginalized, uh, not part of the, the architectural styles and the decisions made, is this something that as that dynamic evolves and changes, which it clearly is, that some of these other conversations maybe become easier? Uh, yes, but go ahead with the but. Yeah. Right. But uh, w- one of our other panelists yesterday was Burt Pinnock, who's an African-American architect in Richmond, Virginia. And he really was, I think, courageous yesterday in some of his remarks about the African-American experience in the city and uh, in particular in uh, Richmond, where he's from. And he talked a great deal about settlement patterns within Richmond and where African-Americans were really allowed to live, especially after the Civil War, those places in the city where African-Americans lived, really the ghettos, were the dumps. It was the land uh, down by the river, which was swampy and full of malaria. Uh, The whites lived up on the hill where the breeze was, and you were less likely to get those diseases. Also, you know, downstream where the effluent from the city was coming past the African-American settlements and the, the whites, even to this day, the predominantly whites and more prosperous part of the cities to the, to the west, upstream on the James River. All that was really fascinating and those patterns persist. Um, that's still how the city is sort of not segregated, but, but where, you know, communities have grown up and persist in those locations. One, you know, remarkable part of Richmond is an avenue called Monument Avenue, which is really a Parisian boulevard with grand, you know, rotaries and roundabouts and decorated with Civil War monuments, which was built in the early 20th century, really during the Jim Crow period. 
as a real estate development, and the monuments were put up very first when it was just a you know sure. cornfield yeah. uh, in order to sell lots and to denote this as a white enclave right. uh, that would be safe and secure for whites to invest and it wouldn't be troublesome. So all those things still exist in the city. And as a white man, I lived there for 25 years. I lived in Richmond, Virginia, and I drove down Monument Avenue almost every day on the way to work and found it beautiful and in an urban sense. And uh, the monuments are spectacular. The houses are spectacular. Of course, I'm a Yankee. I was a transplant to this place. So I sort of saw it from uh, just from an architectural design. I, urban I've had the pers- same experience it's, as a Minnesotan being there. Like, oh, this is cool. It's yeah. tremendous. But for Bert, living there every day, he's reminded of the past. My yes, but is that, yes, it happens. You know, I don't see that. It, it, I think a lot of Americans drive you know, through Richmond and don't see these problems. The African-American neighborhoods are getting better. The city's working to, you know, open them up, make two-way streets, remove the barriers, add new, you know, connections between different parts of town. But it's a slow process, and the African-Americans um, and other people still don't see that change happening fast enough. Bert made this comment that in certain city planning meetings, he's been there where they ask the wealthy West End white folk, what they like about the city. And they they like to say that the government doesn't think about them. They don't care about them. All the money's going to the other side of town. And then you ask the other side of town, the African-Americans predominantly, and uh, how they feel. And they feel the same way. They feel like the city has forsaken them. And and all those rich neighborhoods always, you know, they get the the grass cut. They get the trees limbed down. They're the ones who are getting all all the... When the snow comes, their streets get cleared first. The perception of change is is interesting and um, there's a lot you know it persists I think you know grudges persist for a very long time and I think you have to take an, an active role to start to make the change and that's the conversation piece right right go and ahead you know Steve. there's there's a um, something that happened to me recently uh, when I was doing the second edition of uh, a living tradition architecture of the Bahamas that really changed the course of the whole book uh, I was on Harbor Island and uh, our host there, she asked me, she said, would you like to see the other her- other side of Harbor Island? And uh, I said, what other side? I thought it just this quiet little right. town. She said, well, right. actually, there is nightlife here. I said, nightlife? I had no idea. You know, we'd always gone and, you know, turned in early and, and all this sort of thing. Anyhow, so so they did this like movable feast where everybody goes to one place for an hour and another place for an hour and so forth. And um so she was introducing me to a lot of people, and she uh, introduced me to one guy that's a, that's a boat captain. The developer that was with me, the town founder, he introduced me to this guy, come to think of it. And he introduced me as the author of that book. And he said, oh, you mean the book on colonial architecture? It's a colonial architecture. Right. It never occurred to me. Yeah. And then I got to looking at the book, and almost every photo I had in the book was of houses of uh, U.S. and British expats, not of native Bahamians. Sure, sure. You know, and so that was one of the big changes I made it is, is uh, uh, swapping out a lot of photos, <laughs> you know, to actually make it become more of a book of true Bahamian architecture rather than just, you know, just the rich folks from somewhere else. But then a part of it is also the, the storytelling part of, of saying how, how, because here's the thing, if you look at who actually built the architecture it was not the wealthy plantation owners that built it 
at all. You know, they, they might have been supervising, but that would have been about it. And there's a, a, a gentleman, uh, William was on, that uh, hunted me up in, in the, back in the 1990s. I had something in Southern Living, and he saw that, and he, he's, he emailed me. He said, I've got to ask you a very strange question. He said, are you a white guy? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I never knew there were any white Masons. Anyhow, so we've been talking back and forth over the years, and he said one of the most gracious things I can possibly imagine. We were talking about building because that's that's on both sides of the family. Right? A lot of well, actually, there's there's so many things that, in so many ways, that we are alike. There's no doubt in my mind or his that that we share DNA as well. But sure. uh, but one of the things he said, he said, your ancestors and mine built a really great nation, didn't they? Really, it was his ancestors that did more of the building than what. Well, actually, my my dad and my grandfather were were uh, were trim carpenters, and so they they did some of the work as well. But uh, but to frame it that way was was one of the most gracious things I've ever heard. And I've uh, I will appreciate that all my life. And and I think that if there's that that kind of framing might possibly be key to some of what what David is is. Uh, has been for for these years hoping to resolve. Yeah. I've quoted you many times with this, Steve, because you gave me a, a gateway to do it. In, in your book, Original Green, you talk about places that are lovable. And it's a gateway as an engineer, because we don't, we don't use that term in engineering school. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gateway I've taken because it's a really nice way to describe a place. And, and you talk about if it's not a place that's lovable, people won't care for it. People won't nurture it. It won't be sustained. It won't be taken care of. That term lovable applied to these architecture styles that have a troubled past with them. Steve hit on a, a wonderful thing, and it's very useful, the, the idea of lovability in architecture. And I think we all feel that even well, in Savannah, we're here. There's you know these beautiful squares, and there's a lot to love about Savannah. It sort of goes, harkens back a little bit to Christopher Alexander, the quality without a name. Sometimes you can't exactly explain why it's lovable. It's just, you know, the combination of scale and sunlight. It might be who you're with in the, in the sunlight that day. Right, um, right. And the smell of the flowers. But, uh, it, but there are certainly remarkable places that are lovable or just everyday places that are lovable. I think what, what gets in the way for people is when there's, um, there are physical things that are unlovable for some people um, and then it's less universally lovable and it's everything from just you know a blank wall a tall set of steps up to a courthouse things like that that send messages to people that that are maybe not read by all people but it erodes the lovability of the place and I think the you know the Civil War monuments in places like like Richmond and Charlottesville and all through the south really there are hundreds of them um, some of them are coming down. The, the problem with those, these sort of decorations of the public space, is that they may be in otherwise lovable places, but they're destroying the lovability for a huge section of, our, of the citizens. And so, you know, this question about their removal has, has come up. And I have something here I wanted to read to Please, sort of throw into this conversation. This is, yeah. this is actually Robert E. Lee, who, was, who is the subject of, this, of the sculpture in Charlottesville. At the close of the Civil War, he said this. He said, I think it wiser not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavored to obliterate the marks of civil strife, to commit to oblivion the feelings engendered. And I think that that's, that's talking about absolution and, and to restore the public realm to a, 
to more universally lovable place. Right. Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about lovability as applies to this kind of evolving conversation on architecture? Sure. And one thing that, um, that I've struggled with for years in, in trying to come up with a, an alternative to lead it is if you're going to code for, for truly sustainable architecture, part of the code has to be about, about lovability because that is, that's, that's the first foundation because if it can't be loved, it won't last. Right. And so, you know, if you could write a, a code for human love, you'd be a multi, multi-gazillionaire real quickly, you know? Right. And, uh, but so how do you do it for, for the love of a place and of buildings in that place? But thinking of that for, for a number of years now, there's actually some things that, that humans have been proven to love for forever. And, you know, one of them, for example, is just things that reflect, you know, think of it when, if there's a picture and you're in the picture, you look at yourself first, right? You do, right. I mean, you just that, automatically, your eyes yeah. drawn to so it. So we, we yeah. look for things that reflect ourselves. And, you know, it could be the, the vertical arrangement of the human body. You know, we have a head and a body and, and, and uh, feet and, you know, kind of that three-part uh, division. Or it could be the horizontal arrangement uh, of the human body or proportions of the entire body, like the, the most famous drawing in history, the Vitruvian Man, or, or just parts of the human body. So those are just a, a few things that, uh, out of many that we have been proven to resonate with and so now I do believe it, it is possible to code for lovability. With all of these things, there's a lot of stuff like that that is an aspiration, but people don't actually do the hard work of saying, okay, how do you really do this now? You know, but I do believe that it, it, it is actually possible, and, and, uh, and it's been kind of things that are right in front of us all along. Uh, you know, we just have to look at what people have cherished the most, and, and, and you'll you know, and, and say, why is that? You know, and and, sure. and so I'm now hopeful that that can be done soon. I know we don't have a huge crowd here, but I'm going to ask one more question. And then if there's any, if anybody in the audience has a question, you can come up here with the microphone and uh, I'll let you ask these guys, what comes next? I mean, I, I don't think there is like an, like a, an answer, like A, B, like, you know, let's, let's do B instead of A. What is the next steps and process? And I, I think especially like noting that the three of us are middle-aged white practitioners in this profession. What's the next step for us? So what's the next step for society? And then what's the next step for like the three of us? What, what came out clearly in yesterday's session, which we, we had a full room, we had our panelists, and there was a palpable feeling in the room that this was an important conversation. This was an, a conversation that lots of people on all sides wanted to have and under, you know, they wanted to understand, they wanted to express themselves. The answer to your question is a lot of conversation. And that's something that Ashley talked about a lot in her work. She goes out and she does a lot of community engagement with all types of people. She was really advocating uh, the conversation, that the conversation has to be, it has to be safe to talk about these things. You need to start talking and keep talking. Um, you have to take risks that you might say the wrong thing. As a college-educated liberal white guy, I like to think that I'm um, you know, not going to make a misstep and say the wrong thing, but I often worry whether I am offending sure. somebody just in the conversation. And 
that was the great thing that came out of yesterday was this feeling that, that we need to be talking about these things. We need to get it all out on the table. We need to start to understand each other. It's sort of, you know, we're at the early stages in that, you know, absolution um, sort of process. So yeah. that was my big takeaway. Steve? You know, one thing I really uh, value about the Seaside PNC Institute is the fact that, that they have a long history of on these trips that we do once a year uh, of asking questions that cannot yet be answered with the hopes that if you get uh, a room full of, of very passionate, very smart people thinking about stuff, that eventually it'll get figured out. And in reality, it has on some things. For example, the, uh, there was this one trip uh, to Pienza. Some Roughly half of the trips go there, the other half goes somewhere else to learn something. And that one was about the agricultural edge. How, how can you actually create urbanism that, that there is a sharp line uh, as you would have had with all the old hill towns uh, between city and country, and you can actually look out into the country. And, and uh, at that time, we didn't have any mechanisms, or we didn't have enough mechanisms for making that happen. Now we've been able to figure out some other things that, that actually do allow that to happen. And that's just one example of, of several. I think it is absolutely important uh, or essential that this question needs to continue to be asked I know that the CNU doesn't like to have a similar presentation done if it's ever been done in the past. I think that CNU needs to make an exception for David, that he needs to keep uh, be allowed to keep asking this question at Congress after Congress until we actually can, can have some better answers than we do today. What's the next step for us? What are you, what are you going to do? What, like what... Uh I mean, we've, we've, we've kind of brought this question up. It's out in the open. There's people discussing it. There's a, a lot of sessions at the Congress that are kind of different than what you would have seen three, even three, four years ago. What's the next step for you? One of the best things that ever happened for CNU was the crash 2008 because it really changed the dynamic from being one predominantly focused on new suburban development and making towns out of those legitimate urban settings out of those new developments and caused it to sort of scramble and rethink, you know, what are we going to do? What, how are we going to apply our, the new urbanism to what's left of development in America? And it really looked inward at cities. And I think that that has really brought this, my questions about absolution and race in, in, in architecture and uh, some of these other things to the forefront. And I think that that's been a process so that CNU is now getting applied or, or new urbanism is really getting applied to, you know, urban infill, urban settings, uh, issues of social justice, issues of access and uh, transportation and all those issues. And I think that that's an exciting part of it that I intend to keep following sort of more on the, the urban front. Gotcha. All right. Uh, we got a, a question. John, why don't you give us your name and, and where you're from first? Uh, this is a friendly question. Uh, Chuck, I admire your work, and uh, this is very cool, very inspiring. Oh, and uh, Chuck's doing a lot of great stuff and uh, out there, and we got to meet in Louisville. And I do want to um, second what you said about uh, Steve Mozan's uh, lovability. Um, it's also featured in my latest book, Chromatic Designs, Houses, the Joy of Color in Historic Places. And, uh, and I think that's a really great concept, why people fight for their neighborhoods and their housing. Um, I just want to raise one. You're talking about Richmond, Virginia, and I'm somewhat familiar with it. Uh, my uh, great-grandfather was a prisoner of war during the Libby prison. 
during the uh, Civil War and escaped two times and worked with worked with Lincoln, um, telling about conditions. And I always was disappointed that in Richmond they didn't have some sort of monument or or something about that about the soldiers uh, that were the officers were mostly white, uh, in fact all white. And I would like to see that. Um, and then uh, just a, a throwout question is uh, exploring this whole issue about uh, poor people painting their houses, fixing them up, whether it's in uh, poor neighborhoods in uh, Havana, Cuba, or uh, in uh, Samara, uh, Russia, or Louisville, Kentucky, where they're going to have a convention. So thank you very much, and keep up the good work, guys. Thank you. Either you want to try to tackle... <laughs> Well, I can just address a bit of that. It came up about, um, uh, you know, how do we break down some of these neighborhood barriers? And uh, one woman asked a question, especially about public housing. And I think that what's happening in public housing, and certainly in Chicago, some of the other big cities, and even in Richmond, is they're deaccessioning public housing, and the city's really working with developers to do uh, new development in a public uh, private partnership where they do more mixed income housing so that it's not a, you know, so public housing isn't a way to segregate people in the way that it had been done in the past. Even though it was an altruistic idea of housing these people in safe, clean places, they ended up being places of squalor just because they were segregated and they were devalued um, by that segregation. So I think that that's, that's one thing that's sort of evolving in all these, uh, these different cities. So we have gotten towards the end of our podcast here, and all of a sudden the room fills up. Uh, you guys have missed a fantastic conversation. Steve Mozan and uh, David Rao, thank you for starting this conversation. I, I think a few people have said that to you, but I want to say it as well, and I, I hope we continue with this. Absolutely. All right, thank you. Thank you. Give it up for these guys. And thanks for listening. Uh, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.